This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Pink Moon Murders, a production of iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. This is episode one, an Appalachian backroad. Wind chimes made at this Amish shop in rural Appalachian, Ohio, with birds singing in trees nearby, create a melody so peaceful and soothing that it's hard to believe eight members of a family were murdered not far away while sleeping one night, and the murders remain unsolved. I stopped here to buy snacks on my way from Cincinnati, 70 miles west, before continuing to where the rodents lived and was again struck by the extremes of life. On Friday, April 22nd, 2016, Bobby Jo woke up in the final light of a full moon, helped her teenage daughter get ready for school, and then, as the sun climbed over the hills, drove with two friends to a homestead where some of her relatives lived. She needed to feed dozens of chickens, 15 dogs, and a 400-pound hog like she did most days. Bobby Jo liked to help out her family in Southern Ohio that way. Plus, she was earning a little money. After that, she and her friends had plans. Strangely that morning, Chris's pit bull and boxer were relaxing on the front porch when she arrived. Usually those two were inside. Chris was her brother-in-law. Actually, he was her ex-brother-in-law, but that distinction didn't matter to her. After using her key to pop inside his trailer to say hi, Bobby Joe came upon a horrific scene. She fled outside and at 7.49 a.m. called for help. Okay? I thank you. You're welcome. 
Union Hill Road splits off Route 32, which connects Cincinnati at the bottom left of the state with West Virginia at the bottom right. A couple of miles long and unseen from the highway, this back road cuts through hills and hollers with just a dozen or so homes and a few fields spread along it, and forest everywhere the land is too steep to plow. This is unincorporated Pike County, with Piketon, 18 miles away, and a population of 2,100, being its nearest village. The entire county, spread over 440 square miles, has only 28,000 residents. As deputies and ambulances raced to Chris's home, where his cousin Gary was staying for a while, roosters crowed and coonhounds howled. Suddenly, Bobby Joe took off running, away from her two friends, away from the trailer, away from the huge new barn as well as the older one, and zigzagged past dozens of used cars parked around the yard. 75 yards later, she reached the other trailer on the homestead. In it, Chris's son Frankie and his fiancée Hannah Hazel lived with their six-month-old and Frankie's three-year-old from an earlier relationship. The young couple was wildly in love. On Facebook, Hannah Hazel boasted with lots of cute emojis, I'm 20, engaged to the love of my life, mother to Ruger Lee, and I'm happy. And Frankie posted a photo of her and him kissing with the caption, I love her more than she will ever know. But she knew. She clicked to like it. Frankie was always smiling when he was around her and around his sons. Bobby Joe banged on the door and eventually Frankie's three-year-old opened it. She asked the blonde-haired, blue-eyed little boy where his dad was, and he pointed to the bedroom. Upon entering, Bobby Joe found an even worse bloodbath. In bed, Frankie and Hannah Hazel were lying on sheets soaked red, their heads disfigured. Their six-month-old was between them and covered entirely in blood, including his diaper. He was stroking his dad's chest and had just finished nursing on his mom. As with the first trailer, a bedroom window was open even though the temperature was down to 54 degrees with wind gusts. The little boys were shivering. Panicked, Great Aunt Bobby Joe ripped off her sweatshirt and put it on the three-year-old and wrapped the six-month-old in a blanket before running outside with them. While they waited for emergency personnel to arrive, she called her dad, who lived a mile and a half up the winding, undulating Union Hill Road, and he rushed to her while her brother stopped at a trailer in the middle. That was where their sister Dana lived with two more kids she'd had with her ex-husband Chris, and one of her grandkids was there too. After seeing Dana had been shot to death and hearing a baby crying, the brother turned around and walked out. When deputies eventually arrived at that home, they found teenagers Chris Jr. and Hannah Mae also murdered with bullets to their heads. But Hannah Mae's five-day-old daughter, snuggling in bed with her, had been spared. Jeff Reif, a Pike County hotel clerk, described this further to me. I remember one of the police officers telling me he thought when they found you know, when they went in to that crime scene, he said he, they thought the baby was actually dead for the first couple minutes because it was covered in so much blood and brain matter that, you know, and then the, the ba they heard the baby start crying a little bit and they immediately got it help. Over the next hours, fear and chaos gripped the small community as, as deputies and other law enforcement officers from Pike and surrounding counties sped to the three crime scenes, along with more ambulances, the victims' loved ones, and news reporters. Schools went into lockdown, stores closed, and home doors were bolted shut as word spread that a mass murderer was on the loose. 
it scared me to death. Like it scared me. It, I was very, very intimidated to, to live here. That's Taylor Wolf, a single mom. I mean, they're very close. They're, they're fairly close to me, like to where we live, um, where my family lives. So that was very scary. I was scared to death. Pretty much everyone around here was really on edge. Jeff said a lot of people started arming themselves when they went out, although he kept his shotgun at home. I have a few friends that carry, that have their concealing carry, and they carried weapons actually pretty much the entire day. Um, when they'd go out, they'd holster them, put them in their glove box or something like that. As police secured the crime scenes, searched for evidence, and set up roadblocks, members of the community gathered at Union Hill Church where some rodents attended services. Pastor Phil Fulton opened its community center, told a crisis response team where to set up, started brewing coffee, and pointed to where people could set casseroles, salads, and other dishes they were donating to rodent survivors. He also hugged and prayed with people who were sad, upset, and scared, and looking for strength. People had no idea who had committed the murders, or why, and if they would be next. The Pink Moon Murders will return after the break. And now, back to the Pink Moon Murders. I spoke with Pastor Phil about this. Yeah, I mean, you, you wonder at that point, okay, who could have done it? Who, who would have committed this? And there was no doubt. I'd, I'd heard of people that they were afraid, especially out in that area. What if they come back or whatever? Uh, my kids called and said, oh, Papa, you, you, you better watch yourself. Unbelievably, the situation became worse. Another rodent relative called 911 at one twenty-six in the afternoon. 911, can I help you? Yeah, I need a, a deputy to come out to close to 799 West Fork. Okay. All this stuff, it's on the news. Um, I, I just found, just found my cousin with a gunshot wound. Is he alive? No, no. Okay. And you're at 799 West Fork? It's close to 799. I don't know what his address is. He don't, he don't have a box. You don't have a box. Okay. I'll be standing out by the roadway. What's your name, sir? Donald Stone. Donald Stone. Donald Stone. Stone? I, yeah, I'm his cousin. What's his name? Kenneth Roden. Kenneth Roden? Yeah. Okay, sir, are you out of the house? I'm out, I'm out of the house right now. I just went in, uh, hollering at him, and checked his right now. And I looked at him, he had a gunshot wound. Okay, sir, we're going to get deputies out there to you, okay? All right. Thank you. Nervous for his own life and for his remaining clan, Donald had checked in with them. But after Kenneth didn't call him back, he took it upon himself to drive there with his son. Kenneth lived in a camper a few miles off Union Hill Road. After stepping inside and searching for his cousin, Donald found him lying in bed with blood in his eyes where he'd been shot. Donald backed up and left, but not before seeing illegal marijuana plants growing in a tray. He and his son then waited outside next to Kenneth's Pitbull Terrier mix. Wow, this is heavy. Pike County is actually one of the safest places in America. The day after the murders were discovered, the ABC affiliate in Cincinnati reported, Pike County's violent crime rate is nearly 98% lower than the national average, and more than 66% lower than the state average. And the Pike County Convention and Visitors Bureau calls the county a picture-perfect place to live, work, and raise your family. 
So how did the Roden Massacre happen? I grew up in another peaceful place in Ohio, a suburb of Cincinnati, and studied journalism at Ohio University in Athens, which over Route 32 is 65 miles deeper into Appalachia. But in recent years, I've lived in South Florida as a writer and editor. Like many people who learned about the Roden murders, I became intrigued. How can someone hate so intensely to kill so many people? Or kill just one person? Who's the bad guy? Or guys? And will they kill again? Over the next couple of years, I followed the developments in the case and kept working. Then on Valentine's Day 2018, a gunman went on a shooting spree that killed 17 people and wounded 17 more at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That's in the small Florida city of Parkland, which is another usually peaceful place. I watched on TV live as helicopters flew overhead. My twins were in seventh grade and soon would attend high school. MSD was one of their options. I've known a lot of people who were affected by that shooting, although none who were killed or wounded. Still, I developed a desire to learn how someone can just up and murder one day after cold, calm planning. Violence just seems to be lurking inside humanity's collective soul, waiting to escape. I decided to investigate and ended up making dozens of trips to Southern Ohio, spending months there and using my parents' house in Cincinnati as a base. It was good to spend so much time in Ohio after concentrating on my family and career in Florida. I hadn't lived with my parents in years and also missed my two sisters. We have a huge extended family with 30-something aunts and uncles and 50-something first cousins at last count. Family parties have always been fun and I miss them. My dad's family is solidly Cincinnati and of German stock. My mom and her family lived on a farm and some other places in Northern Kentucky for several years before settling in Cincinnati. Her dad's side is English and her mom's side is Scots-Irish, like many people in Pike County. I also missed my old high school and college buddies. One night I went out for beers with a bunch of them, some I hadn't seen in years, to hear what they thought about the rodent shootings. I was surprised by how closely they'd followed it since it was no longer making national news and was rarely in the local news anymore. But one of them has a sales territory that includes where the murders took place, and another is a sheriff's deputy who was called out to help in the early days. On my trips to Southern Ohio, I formally interviewed dozens of people and informally spoke with hundreds more. Among those were relatives and friends of rodents, as well as cops and ex-cops, government officials, journalists, librarians, pharmacists, farmers, hunters, veterinarians, opioid addicts, the girls working at the YMCA, and bartenders and servers. I spoke with people who worked at the atomic plant. Yeah, I had no idea one of the world's most sophisticated uranium enrichment facilities was in small-town Piketon either, and anyone else who was willing to speak. They all knew facts and local rumors about the Roden murders, and they all had their theories on suspects and motives. But not everyone would talk with me, that's for sure. A few even stared daggers into my eyes when I told them why I was in the area. Maybe they knew rodents and still had too much emotion. Or maybe they knew suspects. Maybe they were the killers since no one has been convicted of the murders yet. And Judge Randy Deering has been gagging law enforcement officers and prosecutors from speaking with the media. One of the first deputies to arrive at a rodent crime scene, the county prosecutor and a bailiff at the courthouse were cordial with me 
but they refused to speak about this active case. They said they couldn't until there were any verdicts. That might be years from now, if ever. So this podcast series is based largely on my original reporting that includes speaking with locals as well as visiting the road and homesteads, courthouses, police stations, and other sites. I've also studied court documents, autopsy results, property maps, the U.S. Census, Piketon High School yearbooks, news reports, etc. Our website has my acknowledgments. I didn't pay anyone for interviews because in my journalism career, I've never done that. Besides investigating the Roden murders, I journeyed into a pocket of Appalachian, Ohio I was eager to learn more about, including the land and people. It's not monocultural like many outsiders stereotype it. Yes, virtually everyone in Pike County is white and Christian and grew up locally, but it's not as conservative as some imagine. Many no longer go to church. And I met a couple of Goths and gay people. I also saw a few African-Americans whose ancestors, I was told, had settled in the area when it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. I fell in love with Pike Countyan's accent. It's a blend of Appalachian, country western, and southern since it's so close to Kentucky but I admit sometimes I had no idea what people were saying. And then there are the Amish with their Pennsylvania Dutch language they speak among themselves in Pike and neighboring Adams County. With me, they spoke English with the local accent. The land is spectacular. These foothills of the Appalachian Mountains provide gorgeous, dramatic panoramas to the horizon in all directions. I saw the green of growth on trees in the spring and summer and yellows, oranges, and reds of maturity in the fall, followed by bare trees and white snow bumps in the winter. A massive meteorite crashed into Pike, Adams, and a bordering county millions of years ago, and its impact crater, one of only 28 known in the United States, became the site of Serpent Mound, the largest effigy mound in the world. It was built at least a thousand years ago by indigenous people who embraced the extraordinary topography Years before the Roden murders, the Cleveland Plain dealer called Serpent Mound Crater the most mysterious spot in Ohio and said it's where gravity's pull is different and rocks stand on edge. That adds to the region's unique aura. The murders were carried out on the night of April 21st to April 22nd, 2016, only a few hours after the opening ceremony of the annual Pike County Dogwood Festival which included the crowning of the queen and naming of the citizen of the year. Also on the 21st, the Chicago Cubs no-hit the Reds in Cincinnati, crushing them 16 to nothing. And music legend Prince died of an opioid overdose a few states away. Or the murders were carried out in the early morning of April 22nd, which was Earth Day around the world. Overnight, the sky was lit by the full moon. Since the murders were carried out with such stealth and precision at four locations, I've wondered if the killer or killers wanted to use that extra light in the otherwise pitch blackness of a rural, wooded area without streetlights. Or maybe the full moon just pushed them over the edge. History is filled with bad behavior during full moons. Some scientists think the greater pull of the moon's gravity affects our brains like it affects ocean tides. And I've wondered why the youngest children were spared. Was that intentional or an oversight? an act of compassion or particular cruelty? What if the babies weren't found until days later? I have a lot of questions, but the two most important are these. Who would want this family eliminated and why? 
I poured through records at the Pike County Common Pleas Court, and other than one assault charge that was dropped against 20-year-old Frankie Roden, I couldn't find criminal charges against any of the eight victims. So they had no history of illegal activities that might get them into trouble with bad guys. Or at least that's how it appeared. More Pink Moon murders after a word from our sponsors. We now return to the Pink Moon murders. In the days after the murders, local, regional, and national news outlets ran profiles of the seven rodents and one rodent-to-be, Hannah Hazel Gilly. They were portrayed as members of a big, loving, and fun family raising their kids and working hard at their jobs. Chris, who is 40, was divorced from Dana, who was 37 and had kept the rodent last name. They'd married young when she was 16 and he was 19, and divorced young 13 years later. But they were considering reconciling, even though on social media she listed her relationship status as, it's complicated. In fact, just one month before the murders, Chris had purchased for her the land and trailer where she lived with their two youngest kids on Union Hill Road. Chris worked seasonally as a carpenter at a campground down in Soda County, did some odd jobs, and bought, fixed, and sold used cars. It seemed he was doing the best he could with the limited job prospects in the area. And Dana worked at a nursing home over in Peebles, Adams County, as a nurse's aide, which is about as altruistic of a career as someone can have. Plus, she was still looking over her three kids who weren't completely grown up and helping with her four grandkids. She was reported to be a regular churchgoer with a quirky sense of humor. Newspapers ran a photo of their kids when they were young. All three had blonde hair, blue eyes, and big smiles, which was common for the entire family. Frankie and little Chris, who was a freshman in high school, worked with their dad at the campground from time to time. But Frankie was employed full-time at a sawmill in Peebles. In his free time, he doted on his fiance and sons, but also fixed up cars, competed in demolition derbies, and hunted deer, rabbits, and squirrels. Frankie seemed to be the all-American boy, Appalachian, Ohio style. 20-year-old Hannah Hazel Gilly, another blonde with blue eyes, was a stay-at-home mom who was absolutely devoted to Frankie and their son, and even to his other son on the days he stayed with them. In high school, she'd been on the homecoming court and was active in 4-H. Besides taking care of the males in her life, she loved riding four-wheelers and dreamed of going to college and then opening a daycare. Hannah Mae Roden, 19, worked as a nursing assistant at a nursing home next to the campground where her dad worked. She had primary custody of the two-year-old daughter she had conceived with her ex-boyfriend, who fortunately had her the night of the murders, and had given birth four or five days earlier to another daughter after she'd started dating again. A news article said she would have graduated from Piketon High School the next month. Chris Jr., who most people called Little Chris, was the only victim who was a minor. At 16, he had recently received his driver's license and enjoyed tinkering with and driving his dad's used cars. He also loved demolition derbies and hunting, just like his older brother, dad, and other rodent men. And little Chris was the life of every party he attended. Kenneth, who at 44 was Big Chris's older brother, was the only victim who lived by himself and the only one who lived off Union Hill Road. He commuted every day for an hour and a half each way to work at a utilities company in the big city of Columbus. Like Chris, Kenneth had four sisters and two more brothers. 
He also had children and grandchildren and an ex-wife, plus those illegal marijuana plants growing in a tray. Kenneth was so well-loved that a Facebook page devoted to his memory states that he started a new job at Heaven on April 22, 2016. His job title is Guardian Angel. 38-year-old Gary, who is Kenneth and Chris's cousin, was from Greenup County, Kentucky, where the Roden clan had lived for generations until a branch moved up to Ohio. He was staying temporarily with Chris, but not much else was reported about him in those early profiles of the victims. He seemed to be the biggest mystery. So were the Rodens truly a loving, fun, and hardworking family? If so, why would anyone want them dead? Did one or more of them have dark secrets that somehow led to this tragedy? I set out to learn more about the Rodens and look more deeply into what happened that infamous night, as well as in the days, months, and years after it, and before it. This includes, believe it or not, the suspicious death of still another Roden two years after the initial massacre. She too was shot to death, and her body was found in a Pike County forest. Along the way, I learned how the community has moved forward as well as steps and missteps investigators have taken. Here we are, five years into what Ohio's Attorney General has called the longest, most complex, and labor-intensive investigation in state history, and no one has been tried in court yet. So far, there have been 1,100 tips to law enforcement officers who have reportedly conducted 550 interviews and arrested and released many persons of interest. A $10,000 reward poster still hangs inside the Pike County Sheriff's Office. In addition to showing photos of all eight victims, it asks for anyone with information on the Roden murders to call the Sheriff's Office or the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. This is not a closed case with a guilty verdict or verdicts that provide closure and justice and free up police and prosecutors to speak with me. It's a very active case with a judge's gag order, which presents challenges as well as opportunities to discover. This story is a real-life whodunit and whydunit, and what I discovered has more twists and turns than an Appalachian back road. The Pink Moon Murders is a Cavalry audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Written and narrated by David Ratterman. Produced by Brandon Morgan of Cavalry Audio and Casey Wayland for Wayland Productions. Edited by Tim Mulhern. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.